Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the 92nd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How you doing? Good, good. Were you happy with the outcome of the national championship game last night? I was. Uh, that, that was my original winning pick. Baylor in your bracket? That was my winning pick of, of the 64. And I picked it. It really wasn't. It, I didn't watch any of it. I was already in bed, but it looks like it wasn't even close. Yeah. And this is what I've been saying all season. You know, Gonzaga has not been truly tested in down big in a game and having to come back that to that degree. Right. And uh, that was the whole reason I picked Baylor to begin with. They were battle tested. No, nah, there you go. There you go. Did you finish first in your bracket? Uh, no, I didn't. I came in third, believe it or not, because um, another family member uh, Kate did so well in the first round with all those upsets. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. But uh, also for the record, I did not stay up for the game. I watched it till halftime and then I had to go to bed at 11. Nice. Nice. I was uh, was watching my New York Mets with their first game last night before before I hit the hay. So I didn't even didn't even turn it on real quick. How are they looking? They're looking good. They lost. I went to bed. It was two nothing. Then they lost like five three. So oh, disappointing. Oh, well. yeah. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? All right. Well, getting back to the markets, Matt, uh, we'll go over performance um, for the month and the year. Um, and these numbers are as of the close on April 5th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 1.44% for the month and up 8.57% for the year. The Dow up 1.13% to start the month and up 9.54% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index up 3.46% for the month and 6.34% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 0.55% for the month and up 14.75% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 1.1% for the month and up 6.8% for the year. The three-month T-bill yielding 0.03%, the two-year Treasury uh, yielding 0.17%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.69%. Big news from uh, the past week, Matt, is the big one was on Friday when the markets were closed. Non-farm payrolls rose by 916,000 in March versus estimates of 675,000, and the unemployment rate dropped to 6%. So gains were strongest in the leisure and hospitality, which saw a gain of uh, 280,000 new hires last month. And as a note, the unemployment rate was down to 3.5% prior to COVID. But so it continues to kind of make up, make up some lost ground, per se. We're making it our way back there, yeah. Um, U.S. daily COVID vaccine doses eclipsed an average of 3 million per day over the past week. And as of April 3rd, about 31% of the population has received at least one vaccine dose and 18% of the population has been fully vaccinated. 
and this data is from the CDC. So more signs of things getting back to normal or at least things getting back open in the economy. I'll throw something out there real quick, Mark. My perception is is that the market is now, quote unquote, I think dialed in or calibrated to this, you know, vaccine herd immunity timeline. And I think, you know, earlier in the first quarter, that wasn't the case. And just uh, an observation, my opinion, you know, I, I think that in my opinion, COVID vaccine is baked into the market right now. Yeah, I think it is too. It's so a good think, way of saying it. Yeah. So I think people have to be prepared for us getting another surprise and things not going as good as people had hoped or people yeah. think. Yeah, I got that. That's a good way of saying it, Mark, because I think in essence that it's, it, it's priced in that this is going to continue at this rate, in my opinion, and that the potential surprise is to the downside, not the upside. Yeah, I okay. agree with that. That's a good way of saying it. Yep. Um, so lastly, uh, before we move on, President Biden had started uh, pushing an infrastructure spending bill last week with a speech in Pennsylvania, and his plan includes a proposal to raise the corporate tax rate to 28% from 21% currently uh, to fund the package within 15 years. Uh, if this is passed, the combined federal state corporate tax levels in the U.S. will be back to the highest rate among OECD nations, which stands for the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, is a intergovernmental economic organization with 37 member countries founded in 1961 to stimulate economic progress and world trade. So... so Go ahead. What I thought was interesting, too, I think I just saw yesterday Janet Yellen... You're already ahead of me. Uh suggested a worldwide corporate tax or in, in essence to be more or a specific, minimum a minimum minimum world minimum in essence tax. because her her um argument was this could be a quote-unquote multi-decade race to the bottom right who could have the lowest tax rate to attract you know the corporations and um that's not a good way to start the conversation, mm -hmm. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what do you, I mean, you know, so if this happens, if, you know, corporate tax rates go from 21 to 28%, I mean, how big of an effect do you think that would have on markets? All right. My two cents is I think a higher tax rate is to a certain extent baked into this market as well. Yeah. You know, I, I look at it from the optics of, would a 28% rate, if it were passed next week, quote unquote, shock the market? And I don't think that's the case. I think that the market is expecting higher corporate taxes. And, you know, right now, I'd say, if I give you my best guess, 24, 25% is already baked in. And I think the, the more that the infrastructure spending bill is discussed, and the more this gets out there that we're going to a 28% tax rate, the more it's going to get baked in. It's yeah. no surprise that we're going to be, if this passes on the highest tax rate of these developed countries, no surprise. Um, ultimately, I don't think it's going to derail the market, in my opinion. No, I don't think so either, because I think what a lot of people don't understand is if you look at the um, infrastructure bill that Biden put forward, is that there is a ton of government subsidies for a lot of industries that are going to need to or need to participate in this repair of in infrastructure in this country. So I guess that somewhat is going to be offset initially, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's not going to be like, you know, they're going to hike tax rates and then there's going to be nothing to 
offset some of that, I think. So I don't think it's going to be as intense as some people think when they just say, oh, corporate taxes are going from 21% to 28%. Well, we got to remember prior to 2016, we're at 35. Right. And, you know, we made some pretty the good returns. The market still did fine. We made some pretty, made some pretty <laughs> good returns that, before that time period, too. Right. Agreed. So, so I don't think, you know, this isn't a situation that I think people should be making you know, buy or sell decisions around, in my opinion. I'm 100% in agreement. And again, as each week passes, that rate, in my opinion, is getting more and more baked into the market. Yeah. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week, I'll let you lead it off. You got MJ. it. I got some goodies for listeners this week, Mark, and I think you'll enjoy it too. First I have is a housing update from Compound Advisors Research. They had a note out, Mark, on April 3rd, Okay. The, uh, the chart they showed went back to 2003, and it shows the year-over-year changes in house prices. Now, the specific index it's quoting is an index called the S&P Case-Shiller U.S. National Home Price Index, okay? The housing boom continues with an 11.2% spike in prices over the last year. That is the largest Year-over-year increase, Mark, since 2006. I'm going to throw that out there. Now, it does show some of the largest metro areas within the U.S. This is interesting. Um, Over the past year, the uh, metro area um, of the 20 largest in the U.S. that had the most appreciation was Phoenix, coming in at 15.8%. And uh, dead last was Las Vegas at 8.5%. Kind of interesting. But um, again, the median was um, around 11. Now, here's the really interesting statistic. We are now down to a two-month supply of existing homes. We got down to three and a half months or so back in 2005. And I have the chart uh, for our internal notes going back to 2000. I mean, this is quite the um, um, the lack of supply in the marketplace. And what do you, can you just explain what you mean? But what like two month supply of existing homes? What do you what do you mean by that? It's a good question. What it does is the simulation looks at the average number of homes that are being purchased on an ongoing basis, and it extrapolates how much it would take to get through that inventory at that rate. So for supply to go to zero, essentially, correct. Okay. Of what's out there. Mm-hmm. Now, the average to give people a feeler is almost six months, 5.618 months to be exact. Um, and that that's the average. And we've been under the average mark since 2015. Okay, that's the first thing to throw out there. Now, let's give some listeners perspective back to the great financial crisis, because I think a lot of people you know, they see how good real estate is now, and they remember how tough it was back in, in the late 2000s. And home supply at that point, at the worst point, got to 12 months. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was really neat about this, that didn't peak until 2011, multiple years after the financial crisis. I thought that was interesting, too. Yeah, I think it is, too. And I think, you know, this is something that, you know, may or may not last longer than people expect. But I think everyone is looking at it like the financial or excuse me, the housing crisis and saying, well, this this can't last for another two years. Something's going to happen. Prices are going to fall crazily. And, you know, the other side of it is just being open to the fact that it keeps going. Yeah, I mean, we have a very tight supply chain right now. 
We have very limited supply. We have very cheap money. So this all is until any of those things change, it points to higher home prices. Yeah. I mean, let's go back to 07. I don't want to oversimplify the conversation, but people were getting loans for a house with no proof of income. Okay, so they were buying an asset with no money down, showing no proof of income. And um, if you talk to anybody who has uh, did a mortgage recently, it's not easy peasy. I mean, you got to prove all that stuff. Yeah. Right. Arm and leg. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of due diligence that they do. And so what I'm getting at is when someone says that to me, I go back to 07 and a lot of people thought it was just going to continue to run, run, run. And the mere skepticism of it tells me it's going to go more. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. You know. Yeah. All right. So I want to throw that out there. Um, you know, I thought it was real interesting statistics on, again, how much supply of homes, um, you know, what you're seeing in uh, price increase spikes um, year over year. You know, we're, we're hitting a high since 06. The um, last comment I'll make regarding housing is. You know, remember, listeners, a lot of these raw input costs, things like lumber, are through the roof. And if those price gains continue, it will start to really make the affordability of a new housing build a lot harder. And so one of two things are going to happen. Either existing home prices will rise more to meet and match that cost, or you're going to see raw input prices go down. Yeah. One of the two have to occur. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any comments you want to make on that? No. Okay. I got one more um, big picture um, a topic I'd like to bring up to listeners, Mark. And this is kind of an update on U.S. manufacturing. Okay. Now, uh, this is also a note from Compound Advisors on um, April 3rd. Um, the highest level we are seeing currently, the highest level of manufacturing activity since 1983. Now, the index specifically we're talking about is the uh, U.S. ISM Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index, or PMI. And in my opinion, the COVID-related, quote-unquote, bottlenecks are being worked out, it seems. This data, to me, is not bearish, Mark. Mm -hmm. Okay? The other thing I want to throw out there is prices paid component is near a 40-year high, providing further evidence of short-term rising inflation. So again, you know, people want things they want. Let's just take lumber as an example. They got to do that. They're going to pay the price. And you and I are poster child number one example. Yeah, because we are doing a office expansion here. It takes raw materials. We had to redo the subfloor. And guess what? The price was probably triple what it would have been pre COVID. Guess what? We don't have a choice. Yeah, exactly. And I think with a lot of people are painted into the same corner where they already have this stuff in the hopper and going that they can't, they can't just be like, Oh, lumber's triple the price. I'm, I'm gonna not going to do it. I'm going to wait. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. But I think that's just something that could last a lot longer than people think. Yeah. So the tea leaves, um, you know, the data quote unquote tea leaves, um, are not necessarily bearish. You know, I've highlighted a couple that are that are that are bullish. I'm not saying everything's bullish on the economic data front, but it definitely uh, points to a continued recovery, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting um, with earnings coming up here to see comps from 2020 starting. Ooh, that's a good point. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see if companies surprise to the upside or if they can't 
they can't beat their comps from last year. Especially the tech companies are going to have a really tough time, I think, um, some from beating their comps because, you know, they had obviously a standout year last year with everything going on. And then on the other side of the coin, you know, listeners, I would be... um Uh, It'll be very interesting to watch some of these quote unquote reopening stocks and their earnings coming up here, because I think you're going to see a very big difference between what they report, what their balance sheet looks like and some of the recent uh, knife catching of some of these names. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to follow, which is going to get started here in a few weeks. So back to you. We'll stay on top of that. Yep. Um, First thing I had was a tweet from uh, Colibri Trader on April 2nd, and he said, don't try to understand each and every market move because to understand is shallow. Try to follow your rules instead, and the understanding will follow. So I just kind of like this because, you know, we've talked about this before, Matt, is that I think everyone gets too wrapped up in the why. Why is the market up 1% today? Why is it down 5% in the last week. And there are so many different factors that go into that answer that you're going to drive yourself crazy. It's not a one sentence. The media wants to label it. It's because of rising rates this week. It's because of the jobs report last Friday. They want to assimilate a narrative in one or two sentences. And Mark, you're exactly right. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, people keep Keep contributing to your 401k, keep getting matched by your employer, keep contributing to your Roth or traditional IRAs and your after-tax brokerage accounts and all that stuff, and it'll take care of itself. I wouldn't read too much into the tea leaves, so to speak, with all this stuff going on with why are markets moving. It doesn't, to most people, it doesn't matter. You know, I'll just add one thing to this. Um, I could get you a chart of the S&P for any time period, five years, 10, 20, and I could show you a list of reasons why the market sold off or people became concerned or worried. And each one of those events at the time will seem like it's a major thing. End of the world. End of the world, quote unquote. And guess what? The market's higher. Yeah. And so that goes back to a point you have driven home um, to really help our listeners out, which is stick to their plan. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Uh, next thing I had was from a tweet from Macro Charts, also on April 2nd. Um, so he tweeted a chart of the SOX, which is the semiconductor index. And he said this, SOX just gained 9.5% in one week, one of the biggest moves ever in the top 3%. Price thrusts usually trigger a start of massive rallies, especially in bull markets. Critically, this is the second thrust triggered in three weeks. Follow the trend. This could be a big one. And what he means by like price thrusts, it's these big, large gains within a short amount of time, within a couple days or a one week period. And I think what we saw, Matt, is we saw several of these in the major indexes coming off the lows in 2020 that you saw these same bullish price thrusts that typically start new legs up in the market. Um, And I think with the semiconductor index underperforming over the past few weeks, now seeing these bullish price moves, I think that's very, very optimistic going forward because, you know, in this bull market, semiconductors have tended to lead the, the market higher. And they just closed at weekly record highs last week, right? And I think people have to remember that, 
you know, semiconductors aren't just in computers and phones anymore, right? They're in cars, they're in appliances, they're in virtually almost everything, right? So, um, and especially again, coupled with the tight supply chain right now, these semiconductor manufacturers have price control. And, you know, I think this is a, a, a notch in the uh, belt of the bulls right now. If you see semiconductors breaking out to all time highs with these bullish price thrusts, and again, with the tight supply chain that we're experiencing right now, you know, I think that the path of least resistance, at least for now, is higher, which is positive for the general market. Very well put, Mark. The uh, best suggestion I have for listeners is rewind this podcast two and a half minutes. Listen to everything Mark just said. I would agree that I think the Sox uh, right now is a leading indicator for the market, especially the NASDAQ. Um, I think it bodes well uh, for April here going into earnings season, in my opinion. And um, I, I can't add anything. Great. Perfectly said. Um, so, uh, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. And as I mentioned last week, Peter Lazaroff from Plan Corp wrote a series of blog posts that highlight the most important financial decisions to make depending on your age. And last week we reviewed, um, investing in your twenties and this week we're going to discuss investing in your thirties. I'm only in this for just a little bit longer, buddy. You're still there though. Hang it on by thread. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Peter starts off by saying, your 30s are the time to begin building lasting wealth to meet life's growing demands. Here are six ways to focus your investing strategy as you navigate your 30s. Consolidate your investments. If you started investing in multiple accounts in your 20s, your portfolio may be in disarray now. You might have 401k accounts with a few employers, a Roth IRA that you started right out of college, and some online investments you built up over time. Now is the time to consolidate those investments, pooling them in one place. With the help of a single advisor, makes it easier to see the role each investment plays in achieving your financial goals. It will also help you avoid redundancies and manage your overall risk. And I think I have found just in our practice, Matt, that it's way easier for people to keep track of their investments when they consolidate it into a few accounts. And it's much easier to manage risk this way. So consolidating 401ks into your current employer's 401ks or consolidating the 401ks into a traditional IRA. Um, The only thing people have to keep in mind is keeping your tax buckets separate, right? So if you have a pre-tax 401k, it has to go into a traditional IRA or another pre-tax 401k. And same thing with Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks. So that's the only thing that I think people need to be careful about. Yeah, you know, my only um, item I'd like to add for listeners is you kind of hear this old adage, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's true, but it doesn't mean they can't be on the same farm. Right. Okay. So with that being said, you know, you can have your assets with a single manager or custodian. And as long as they're not purely investing in one style completely, that's okay. And let me give you an example. So in the early 2000s, after the tech bubble, small and mid-cap value reigned for about four years. And it did really, really well. And so what do you think happened, Mark? A lot of people chased that style of investment. And what do you think got hit the hardest in 07? Exactly that. Boom. And the problem is, is that there are managers out there that specialize just in that niche. And if you're 
all invested in that one specific niche, it becomes feast or famine. Mm-hmm. So my only word of caution is there's nothing wrong with having your assets with a single manager or firm as long as you're properly diversified within that yeah. and not in one style or niche of investment. That's yeah. my word of caution. Yep, yeah, I agree with that. Um, the next is getting strategic with your debt. And he recommends uh, tackling debt in this order. Uh, number one is high interest debt that is not tax deductible. For example, credit cards, which in my opinion are the silent killer. Yep, I, I'm going to keep going. I agree. Um, debt with private mortgage insurance attached. So try to get above that 20% equity in your home to eliminate your PMI. Correct. Next is high interest tax deductible debt, such as some student uh, loans or business loans. Okay. Next is reasonable and low interest rate debt, 4% or less, that, uh, that's tax deductible, so many student loans and mortgages. Got it. Anything to add to that? You know, my two cents is for people in their 30s, I would be attacking all of those down to the last category. And I'm not saying that the sub 4% tax deductible like a mortgage shouldn't be. I think that I would want to be saving 10% of my income first my opinion, before I would start really tackling the mortgage harder than that. Yeah, yeah, because I think it simply just comes down to the calculation of, hey, can I make more than, say, 4% by investing this money? And usually over the long term, right now, I, th- I think that answer is yes. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be a different conversation if, you know, low interest debt that's 4% today is, you know, 10%. If low interest was considered 10%, then that'd be a different conversation. But that's just not the type of environment that we're in right now. Um, The next is maximizing your retirement accounts. So in general, you should prioritize accounts with employer benefits and tax advantages before investing in others. Maximize your retirement investments in this order. Invest the amount to get a full match on your company retirement plan. Agreed. Contribute to a Roth IRA or deductible traditional IRA if you're eligible, which grow tax-free. Invest the maximum limit on your company 401k. I agree with those orders. Yeah. And I think we talked about this a little bit last week about why Peter might recommend and why me we might recommend contributing just enough to get the full match of your 401k and then funding your IRAs completely before going back to the 401k. And that has to do with investment flexibility, which we talked about last week. So if people want to hear that conversation, go back to episode number 91 to hear that conversation on why Matt and I feel like that's a good idea. Uh, And the last thing I'll note here, Matt, um, and again, talked about it several times before, but um, if you still have money to save above and beyond those things, take a look at health savings accounts. So if you're covered by a high deductible health plan, it has a triple tax advantage, after-tax deduction on your contributions, tax-free investment growth, and then the tax-free withdrawals if they're used to pay for qualified medical expenses. I'm in agreement. Um, the next is making the most of your cash. So the trick is figuring out how much you can put away while still having enough liquid cash on hand to meet immediate needs. Most people find that a cushion between 25% and 50% of a month's expenses is enough to cover fluctuations, 
but you may need more if you have an irregular income, which we've talked about before. Yep, we talked about this. Most financial planners also recommend an emergency savings account of three to six months of expenses. It's best to keep an emergency fund in an online savings account separate from your primary checking so that you earn a higher rate of interest and make it slightly harder to tap the funds for non-emergency purposes. Did you subwrite this article uh, for him? Yeah, I know, I know. And I didn't read this before I said that. That's just something that I've done for the past several years. So I think you ghostwrited this article. <laughs> I wish I could say I did. <laughs> I wish I could say I did. Um, you know, and then I think the other thing to note here, Matt, is that yes, you want to have enough in emergency savings in case anything comes up, but it gets to a certain point where holding too much of your assets in cash makes it difficult to, you know, number one, stay with stay up with inflation. And number two, it makes you know it difficult to meet your needs for retirement. So I think people really have to walk that fine line of being honest with themselves, saying, "Hey, do I have an, if I have enough in cash in the bank, then I need to be investing anything above and beyond that number." Because what people get into a situation is they end up with a couple hundred thousand dollars at the bank, and they've never invested that money, so they're not going to invest it in retirement. So they're just going to be consistently drawing off that money. And with interest rates this low, there's a very, very possible chance that they run out of money doing that. And I think that, you know, people just need to be careful that the the only risk is not of risk of loss in, in the markets. It's also there's a risk of not having enough money or not growing your money quickly you're enough. You're going to lose purchasing power. You're going to lose purchasing power. And there's... A chance that you're going to run out of money because, you know, we know what the academia world says that the closer you get to retirement, the more and more conservative you should get with your investments. But that's could be an argument made that that's also doing a damage to yourself in this low interest rate environment that we're in. You know right? what? I think a lot of that is uh, CYA for people in the money management industry mm -hmm. is is I think the reason that. A lot of these quote unquote lifestyle or life path funds. I mean, you can get me in a soapbox with that, but it's like at the end of the day, I'm sorry, but someone who's 65 and only has 20% stock exposure, I, I want you to put me in a debate against a manager of a life path fund on stage, live streaming on YouTube and put me against him. And it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's just that has worked in the past, but just right now we're in a different environment you know we're no longer in an environment where people can consistently count on you know seven to ten percent in income per year if you're only 20 percent stock exposure not right. gonna happen right not gonna happen um next is planning for the unexpected so um he says nearly everyone with a spouse partner or child needs life insurance and you are better off choosing term life insurance rather than a permanent life insurance policy. You also need some form of disability insurance to protect you from an accident or illness that away your ability to work. And typically, Matt, you know, larger employers have disability group disability insurance that you can just sign up for when you start. So I would encourage people to take advantage of that if you're not already doing so. I got Go one thing on the term insurance I want to throw out there. Yep. I agree. I think um, most people in their 30s, I would be focused more on term rather than permanent is my first comment. My second thing is um, a lot of people that I meet that are in their 30s, 
that are especially uh, a married and or married with children tend to be underinsured. And uh, unfortunately, in our industry, Mark, you and I have seen situations where families have lost a loved one um, and doesn't necessarily need to be the quote unquote uh, person who, who, who brings home the income and have been really, really impacted by the lack of coverage. And today, term insurance is very economical. You and I are not big insurance guys. No, okay? we're not. We're not. Um, but there has to be proper coverage to protect that family. Right, exactly. Because I think you need to look at it as, you know, if something happened to, let's say, you today, what is needed from a monthly income basis to provide your family uh, with the same lifestyle that they're living today. Exactly. And I think that's what every person has to go through. And sometimes that's upwards of 8, 10, 12, sometimes even 15 times your annual salary in life insurance. Agreed. Um, and again, I never want people to be, you know, wasting money and overinsured and that type of thing. But, you know, like you always say, we hope we're wasting our money with these monthly premiums and nothing happens to you, but you have to prepare for the unexpected, yep. right? Just want to throw that out there, especially people in their 30s. I tend to see that more often than not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, develop an estate plan to protect you, your family, and your stuff. If you have minor children, an estate plan is important beyond monetary reasons because it allows you to name the kid's guardian in the event of your death. Otherwise, the decision is up to the state. Um, so there's kind of four key estate planning docs that we recommend everybody have in place at the minimum, Matt. Um, so obviously that is a will, a living will, um, healthcare power of attorney, financial power of attorney. Um, and then the other thing that we get asked about a lot, Matt, that I want you to touch on briefly is trusts. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, you know, when does it make sense for people to put their assets in trust rather than just having a will and having beneficiaries listed on all of their accounts? So the primary reason that people want to or need to have a trust is to control the distribution of their assets beyond their passing. That is the, the main reason. Now, uh, it also, if things are properly titled, it makes sure that things avoid the probate process. It allows you to settle the estate a lot quicker. But the primary trigger or motivation for people to do this, Mark, is be able to control those distribution of assets. Let me give you an example. Instead of something happening uh, to Rachel and I simultaneously, and, you know, let's say my kids were older, above the age of 18, instead of them getting all that money up front at the time of passing of spouse number two, we could write into the trust that they get income for a certain time period until they're older and hence more responsible with inheriting, you know, that type of wealth. Mm -hmm. Makes sense? Mm -hmm. And so um, with that being said, I would say listeners, Controlling the distribution of wealth beyond your passing is one of the big reasons I tend to recommend that someone consider a trust. Yeah. And again, we're not yeah. we're not attorneys. We can't draft these things. We just have the education to understand, you know, what they do and when we should refer them to the proper legal counsel. Right. Or if, you know, the parents own um, like a business, for mm -hmm. example, you know, if something happens to them, then. You know, there's a process for the sale of the business. You know, the, the proceeds go into trust and are there for the kids. That's another common thing that we see. Um, but I think that, you know, if your financial situation's pretty 
um, straightforward and you're not worried about the control of assets, passing it on to the next generation, then a lot of the times then a trust just doesn't make sense. You know, if you have beneficiaries listed on your account and in your wills, you have all your stuff listed on how you want to go and and the control is not um, important to you, then a lot of times I don't think people need to spend time getting a trust. Yeah. I mean, you know, we could have a client with seven figure net worths that don't require a trust. Right. Right. And, you know, just because you're a quote unquote millionaire plus doesn't necessarily mean that you automatically need a trust. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I want to make sure we get rid of that narrative. The other thing I want to throw out there is, you know, there are probably some people who are listening to this podcast right now who think, okay, if something happened to me, who would I name as that successor trustee? And um, if you don't have anyone in mind, there are corporate trust companies that can step in and execute your wishes beyond your passing. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be an individual. And we can provide referrals for that. And, you know, we have no vested interest. You know, it's just an added service that we have. But I want to throw that out there because I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for someone that doesn't have uh, family. around anymore or someone who isn't close to their family so you know they're trying to figure out if they name you know a friend but um and sometimes they don't want to be uh they want to be you know switzerland they want to be neutral yeah they don't you know they have two kids they don't want to name one and upset the other uh could be friends but that's another reason why i see it and it's a good way to use a company It, it takes the emotion out of it because that's their job they can look at that objectively and not have any issues executing that right good point good point um I think that's it for me this week, Matt. Anything else before we leave it here for the week? I do not have anything else. It's just nice to see spring finally hitting uh, the Midwest here. Um, temperatures are getting up to the 60s and 70s uh, in the afternoons. And uh, when I talk to uh, people in the South, I can finally uh, turn the page and say, listen, you know, you're about to be 100 degrees every day sweating and I'm not. Yeah. So the, the page is turning, my friend. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Spring is is in full force, I think, here. It's going to be nice this whole week, and hopefully it's not just another fake out for us. You know I'm going to start getting nasty grams from our friends and clients in, like, California, Florida, Texas right no, now. I know. I can see them coming later today. I know. I mean, it was just snow. It was snowing on Thursday last week. It was. We were, we were at lunch with, uh, was we were lunch with Nick. Yeah, I remember seven, that. It was 75 and, and sunny yesterday. So. Yep. Um, But all right, well, we'll leave it there for the week and we'll be back next week for the 93rd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful, safe rest of the week and weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.